Chapter 16 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Tamrix. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 16 How Jerry Was Protected. On their homeward drive, they spoke of many phases of the Rolling Meadows situation. But all the while, Cordelia's mind was dominantly, exultantly, upon that check in her pocket and its soon-to-be-born sister. Fresh confidence flooded her confident soul. She was experiencing the ancient and somewhat sordid truth that not courage, nor virtue, nor conviction of one's rightness, nor sense of personal powers, nor any inner glow of the higher faculties so enheartens the average mortal as does the material fact of the sudden and unexpected presence of a considerable sum of money in one's pocket. Cordelia could now face anything. All the party were up by the time they were back at Rolling Meadows, and some, as substitute for Sunday morning services, were already dancing to the phonograph. Gladys was dancing with Jerry Plimpton, and it was perhaps the added confidence and independence of the check in her pocket which stirred Cordelia to regard this couple with growing indignation in Jerry's behalf. She recalled the Plimpton tradition toward their women. The utmost was demanded from them. They must be forever beyond scandal's whisper. It was not decent the way Gladys was making up to Jerry when his family tradition would compel him to draw away if he knew the truth. Jerry should be protected. But Cordelia could not tell him. To tell would not be playing the game, and it might put her in light of a gossip and a sneak. But how save Jerry, without herself being the one to put him on his guard? Somehow Jerry had to be protected. She felt righteously decided as to that. Perhaps Cordelia's thinking was not entirely disingenuous, not entirely unselfish. Perhaps her righteous indignation and her concern for Jerry had their real origin in her own plans for Jerry's future. But for the moment she felt flamingly lofty and selfless in her righteousness. Inspiration, it seemed to her an inspiration, came to her in her dilemma. When the dance ended, she crossed to Gladys and Jerry, her determination masked beneath her usual high-spirited smile. "'You'll excuse Gladys for a few minutes, won't you, Jerry? Gladys, I've a bit of news for you that I simply must tell you at once. Let's go up to my room.' She was certain that Gladys would not dare refuse. Gladys did not. Cordelia took her arm, and they mounted the stairway side by side, Cordelia chatting with the appearance of lightness all the while, though she felt the arm she held tense and quiver. Inside the room, and the door closed, Gladys turned sharply upon Cordelia. In her green eyes was the suppressed hate, the cringing fear, the fawning subservience which Cordelia had seen in the small hours of that morning. What? What is it, Cordelia? she asked in a tremulous whisper. 
First of all, I want to tell you that Jackie Thorndyke has asked me to visit her, and I'm leaving you in the morning. This was good news for Gladys, also bad news, for she had counted it as one point to her advantage that she had Cordelia in her house where she could watch her, where a sense of what is owed to hospitality might restrain Cordelia. Away from rolling meadows, what might not Cordelia do or say? But, Cordy, you mustn't, Gladys cried in dismay. You promised to stay with me all summer. You've got to keep your promise, Cordy. And, and after what's happened, you know I need you. I've said I would go, and I'm going. We'll be just wasting time if we discuss it. Besides, I asked you up here on something far more important than my leaving you. The direct look of Cordelia awakened all of Gladys's fear. Gladys shrank away, cowering. Her figure huddled down and quivered as though her bones had turned to jelly. Cordy, she gasped. Cordy, you don't mean you're, you're going to tell? No, but you're going to tell. I tell? I tell? Tell, tell whom? Jerry Plimpton. Tell Jerry Plimpton? I tell Jerry Plimpton? Till now, her voice had been low-pitched. It now burst forth a defiant shriek. I'll not tell him, and you can't make me. I'll not tell him. Never. Be quiet, or you'll tell everybody. Cordelia caught her commandingly by the shoulders. Be quiet, I say. I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to do, and you're going to do exactly what I order. Just then the door softly opened and softly closed. Cordelia felt no surprise whatever when she turned and saw that for the second time their interrupter was Mitchell. "'At it again, Miss Marlowe,' he remarked in his pleasant, mocking tone. "'I gave you to understand, since I knew you were watching me, that I'd be watching you, and when I overheard our dear Gladys's voice, I knew that my place was with you, too.' Your affairs are my affairs. You would have told me anyhow, so of course you will excuse me if I remain. Don't mind me. Please go right ahead. He seated himself comfortably and smiled encouragingly at the two. She's asking me to tell Jerry Plimpton, Gladys angrily explained to him. She turned back to Cordelia. I won't tell him, I say. Cordelia acted upon Mitchell's suggestion that the proceedings ignore him. You will tell, for you're going to listen to reason. You know as well as I do the attitude all the Plimptons have had toward their wives, and you know Jerry has that same attitude. They demand that their women shall be absolutely above reproach. You are not above reproach, at least not from the Plimpton standard. It's not fair to Jerry for you to try to lead him on, with him in ignorance. So it's up to you to tell him the truth. Jerry's a gentleman. You can trust him, knowing it will never go any further. But you've got to tell Jerry. I tell you, I won't do it. You can't make me lose Jerry like that. Gladys's face twitched with convulsive hatred, then with sudden understanding. Oh, I see now what you're up to. You're trying to make me do this so you'll have a clear track to Jerry for yourself. It doesn't matter what my motive is. You've got to tell him. 
and I say again that I won't tell. Their gaze locked. There was a moment of silence. Then the bland voice of Mitchell was gently raised. It seems that my entrance was quite providential. When two parties to a conflict cannot agree, then arbitration is the modern remedy. I nominate and elect myself as the third party, the arbiter. Now let's see if we cannot find a happy solution that will satisfy the wishes of all three of us. I take it that your chief desire, Ms. Marlowe, is not so much that Mr. Plimpton be told the whole truth as that he will be guaranteed protection against Gladys. I presume this latter will satisfy you? That will satisfy me, yes. I will state I am entirely with you, Miss Marlowe, in not wishing matters to go too far at present between Gladys and Mr. Plimpton. So far, so good. Now, Gladys, Miss Marlowe's yielding a point puts it up to us to give her this guarantee which she requires. Now, you don't want Mr. Plimpton to know the whole truth. No more do I. It doesn't suit my personal plans to have a single extra person know, for there's no telling where the thing will stop if it be told. Once more, we are in accord. That brings us straight to an arbitrated agreement. On the one hand, Mr. Plimpton will not be told. On the other hand, Gladys, you'll have to break with Mr. Plimpton. Give him up. I won't do it, she stormed. You can't help yourself. You have only the choice between giving him up of your own accord or having him explosively removed from you by his being told. I am quite certain that Miss Marlowe, if left no other recourse, will not hesitate to give Mr. Plimpton the fullest information. Just cast your mental eyes over those two horns of your dilemma, Gladys, and then seat yourself upon the softer horn. There was a moment of silence. Gladys regarded him with sullen defiance, and Cordelia was resentful of the cool familiarity with which he had taken this matter out of her hands. Mitchell stood up. I'm sure you have made the wiser choice, Gladys. There's a writing desk over near the window— Come on over. We're going to take our pen in hand and write a little letter. Gladys hesitated, then sullenly followed him. At his direction, she sat down and picked up a pen. I'll help you out by dictating the letter, he went on. Of course, it's to Mr. Plimpton. Shall we address him as my dear Jerry, dearest Jerry, or just dear Jerry? I think that dear Jerry will be about the right compromise between formality and affection, since this is to be a letter of farewell. Make it dear Jerry. All set? Let's go. This is the letter as Gladys's rebellious pen set it down. Dear Jerry, you are such an old friend and such a good friend that I want you to be one of the very first to learn of my secret. Remember, it is a secret— you must not whisper it to a soul, and you must burn this letter. I am engaged, and that is not the whole of my secret. I am not even telling you the name of my fiancé. That's the biggest part of the secret. There are circumstances which make silence for a time, but then I don't need to go into explanations to you. You may think my telling you this is a bit strange, but I felt I'd best do so. 
Otherwise, you might misinterpret the way I behave Saturday night, dancing with you so much, and other times. But I know you'll understand. Always your friend, faithfully, Gladys Norworth. When Gladys had finished, Mitchell ordered her to address an envelope to Jerry's city home to enclose the letter, seal it, and hand it over to him. At this last order, Gladys rebelled. I don't want him to get that. He'll think it funny later on, when that engagement is never announced. He may learn that there never was an engagement. I don't propose to look like a fool. Later on, when the proper time comes, you may write him another letter asking him to forget this one and telling him the engagement has been broken and that it's lucky you kept it a secret. But why should I announce a fake engagement at all, she stormed. Would you rather announce a fake marriage, he asked meaningly. I believe we've been all over that. And remember this. If ever you even whisper to Mr. Plimpton that the news of this letter was false news, then instantly he gets the real news. Now give me the letter and please leave us alone. Miss Marlowe and I have something to say to each other. She handed over the letter. Then she whirled upon Cordelia, all her passions blazing forth, hands clenching and unclenching in their furious desire to close on flesh. "'You've done all this, Cordelia Marlowe,' she cried. "'I'll not forget it. My time will come, just you see. And when it comes, oh, but I'll make you pay. I'll make you pay.' Her threats continued to pour out, but Mitchell stopped her, taking her by the arm and shaking her sharply. Gladys, do you think it's wise to talk like that to Miss Marlowe? Instantly, Gladys, once more cringing, I didn't mean a word of it, Cordelia. Honest, I didn't. It's just my nerves. I don't know what I'm doing. You know you're the best friend I have. That will do, said Mitchell. You will now please leave us. With her propitiating, cringing look, Gladys backed away and was gone. Mitchell turned upon Cordelia, again with his satiric, mocking smile. I really have very little to say, he began, except to offer my congratulations. Congratulations? I may seem premature, but congratulations are in order. Remember, I said in the woods at daybreak that I didn't yet know whom it was to be. Plimpton? or Franklin, or me. But I know now, at least which one it will be first. A most glorious match, the coming together of twin glories. The city, the country, will ring with applause, even as very humbly I now sound mine. Your presumption is an insufferable insult, she angrily flung at him, and herself felt the impotence the empty theatricalism of her words. He continued his mocking smile. Pardon me, but nothing a mere servant says can possibly rise to the importance of being regarded as an insult by a lady. Just as a servant would not dare to take as an insult anything a lady might choose to say. His smile grew more daringly humorous. But what a mix-up, democratic thing life is. Now isn't it? The famous Miss Marlowe, the great Mr. Plimpton, 
the rich Miss Norworth and the lowly manservant, also a few others, all entangled in one and the same situation. It is impudent of life, I must say, to attempt to impose any sense of equality upon people by such trickery. All the same, I wonder, I certainly do wonder, how is life going to end it all? In the last chapter, I mean. Before she could attempt any response, he was holding out to her the letter Gladys had written. She took it. Mail it at once. It is your ticket to paradise. No war tax and no speculator's profit. It will admit you eventually. I hope you like the show. After the ticket taker lets you in, and while you still hold the ticket, and while later on you enjoy the spectacle, I hope you will think over my few remarks of this morning upon the subject of blackmail. Still, with his smile of challenging mockery, he bowed slightly and was quickly gone, leaving her blinking and gasping at his last words. End of Chapter 16 Read by Tamrix San Antonio, September 7, 2022